Romans chapter 4, we're continuing on. And let me just erase all of this off of my notes here. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses, we'll be concentrating on verses 4 and 5 today. But we're going to read through 1 through 8, which is really the first section of the chapter and it's been divided up in several ways. I've titled the message, and I wasn't going to do this, but it really turns out to be this way. But 4 and 5 today, and it's part of another series, and it's really Abraham's the pattern of salvation. What amazing truth we're looking at. He's not only the pattern of salvation for us now, but he was for them then, and he always has been. And if every nation came from him, then who is the pattern for Everybody, every type of religion, every type of person, he is the pattern of salvation for everybody. This is what the Apostle Paul is out to prove, and it's an amazing truth. Have you ever seen these things before? I mean, as I'm studying, I'm, these are things that I've learned before, but the truths that are being enlightened, it's amazing. And I desire for you to capture what the Lord's putting on my heart as well. So let's read chapter 4, 1 through 8, then we'll get into the message here. It says this, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So chapter 4, been divided up in many ways for our purposes here. We're going to divide it up in this first part between verses 1 and 8. Within this section, we see Abraham justified by faith. He becomes then a pattern of salvation, not just for the Jew, but for everybody as we've stated before, Paul deals with the negative and then the positive aspects of this great salvation. This is part of his argument. Now, in the first part of Abraham's salvation through faith, verses 1 and 2, show us the negative. In other words, he shows us how Abraham is not saved. He's not saved by what? He's not saved by works. Then, in the rest of these verses in this first section of Verses 4 through 8, he gives us the positive side. So he's not saved by works, but he is saved by faith. Paul does bring David into the picture briefly, but it's just to prove that David, after the Mosaic Law, is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. And we'll look at that as we get to that point. But the overarching view here is of Abraham. Why? Because this was their hero. This is what the whole religion relied upon. 
And they were trying to be like what they thought he was, but they had it all backwards. This is what Paul is showing us. You see, from chapter 3, 21 through 31, Paul describes this righteousness, this salvation through faith, and that it's part of the heart of Christianity. It is the heart of Christianity. You could view it as the bones or the skeleton, if you will, of Christianity. And Paul had to do this. He had to strip everything back to bare bones salvation. Because everything, as we talked about last week, last time we were together, had been encrusted with man-made traditions. So it had to be stripped back, all the law-keeping. And the Apostle Paul, he stripped back all these layers to this salvation through faith, and now he's putting flesh and blood onto what he's talking about so that we can see what it looks like. He gives us the bare bones of it. It was abstract, and now he places it in front of us. He puts flesh on it to cement it. I remember, and you probably remember, most of you, going to museums like the La Brea Tar Pits, the museums downtown L.A. Always fascinated me that how they discovered the bones and of the dinosaurs, and they took the brushes and swept it away very carefully. And then they would take them all out, and then they would put them all together. And then you see the shape of what it was. But what was even more amazing is when they attempted to put flesh and blood on those animals so that you could see what they might have looked like. What a great picture. He put, they put flesh and blood on things for our eyes to see. And something that was inanimate became animated for us. Even today we see how they do it in movies. We see these dinosaurs, what they might have looked like and running around. Essentially, that's what the the Apostle Paul is doing here when he's describing faith. He's given us all the aspects of it. He's given us the skeletal features of it. Now he's bringing it to life. And how is he doing this? By revealing to us Abraham. He's saying, this is what salvation without works looks like. And it looks like your father Abraham. Now, that's shocking. They would never think that. By grace, what do you mean? There's no works I have to do? That's the picture. And he's using Abraham to prove it because their concept was all wrong. This would, don't you think, have caused the Jews pause and confusion. Man, I always thought it was this way. It was a shock to the system. Why? Because everything they have ever been taught led them to believe otherwise. This is why anybody who ever comes out of another religion and accepts Christ, the only true salvation, has a hard time letting go of traditions because they're so locked down in them and God works with them. So Abraham was chosen by God. This is what they believed. Abraham was chosen by God because he was a righteous man first. That's what they believe. Isn't that what everybody teaches? Every other religion teaches that. You have to become righteous to earn your way into salvation. And it's so backwards. Oh man, he's going to prove some really good truth here. This first portion of this argument, it's been said that he uses a hypothetical syllogism. Anybody ever heard of that? A syllogism. I didn't until this week. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to try to explain it. 
See if we can follow. And if you can't follow it, then just re-listen to the message and see if you can get it then, because I'm going to go over it once. But a hypothetical, hypothetical syllogism, it is a three-part logical argument. It's deductive reasoning. And there are two premises. And when they're co correctly combined, they lead to the right conclusion. There's a major premise, there's a minor premise, and then the conclusion. For example, now catch this, all mammals are animals, right? All elephants are mammals. Therefore, all elephants are animals. That's a syllogism. So this is what Paul's doing. Using this hypothetical syllogism, Paul said, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. So the major premise is this, that if a man can make himself right with God by works, he can boast before God. The minor premise is this, that would then make Abraham able as a man to be justified by works. So the necessary conclusion then would be that Abraham could boast. He could boast before God because he did it all. But Paul proves this is not true. It can't be true. One of the premises then is wrong. Why? Because there's no boasting before God, which has already be, been proven. You see, the major premise in verse 2 is true, which is this. If a man could be justified by works, he would be able to boast about that. He would then be able to say, I have merited salvation. I've merited it. I've earned it. I've worked for it. So if the major premise is true, then the minor premise must equally be true to arrive at the correct conclusion. Correct? You, you following me? The minor premise is this, that Abraham was justified by his works, therefore he could boast, but not before God. You can't be, boast before God. So it is untrue. It doesn't work. So the negative side of the argument is that Abraham was not justified by works. This is the argument. This is what he's doing. It's so brilliant. The positive side of it is demonstrated to us now in verses 3 through 5. So we have the negative coming into the positive side. It can't be done by works. It is done by faith. Abraham is justified by faith. So there it is, the negative and the positive. This argument is the striking blow to the Jews' law-keeping fortress. The Apostle Paul is essentially storming the castle of their sanctuary. Can you imagine? It's like he's taking, a he's taking a sword with God's word and running right into their fortress and slaying everything about it, all of their works. And he brings in their father Abraham to do it. And he does it brilliantly. It's a blow to their entire belief system. It's essentially what we are able to do in our arguments, not arguing, not arguing meaning we're yelling at people, but when people come to us and say they have another way of salvation, we go right here and we remember all of this truth. And we say, no, that can't be because look at in Romans what the Apostle Paul says. And there are many religions, by the way, that take this book add other books to it. And they don't even realize this truth is in here. It's amazing. So we pick up verse 4 here. And it says, Now to him who works, 
the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So we've showed that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, God took away our sins when we believed on Jesus and everything that he's done for us. We believe him. We believe what he's done. And he takes all those things from us, and he cloaks us with righteousness. Now, he doesn't make us righteous. We're not perfect. But it's a legal status, remember. It's how God views us legally. It's a standing with him, not to be taken back. Abraham was saved. He was justified by believing God. And it was all done by what? Grace. All done by grace. And Paul was showing that this way of grace was given even in the Old Testament, when he quoted from Genesis 15, 6, we saw that if we back up in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's almost like a beggar on the street who has nothing. Destitute, completely nothing. And the richest person in the world comes and says, you know what? I'm going to take all your nothingness and I'm going to put all my money into your account. And it's all yours. That's the picture. The righteousness given to us. So now Paul expounds upon this even more. Did you ever think it could get even better? That he would explain even more? This is what he does throughout the whole book. Here he's making a general proposition. He's putting it in terms and reasoning that everybody would understand. Remember, it says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You know how to get anyone's attention when you're talking to them? Sometimes, especially with a Christian, go to their bank account, go to their wallet, talk about their money, talk about how emotional they get about their money, talk about their retirement accounts, their bank accounts. Man, you get attention like that. That's what the Apostle Paul does. It's a concept that everybody can understand. You could tell almost everything about a person through their bank account, can't you? Everything. Deal with someone's finance, you'll see where their God is at. And it's true. So we understand the concepts of money and our emotional ties to it. This is what Paul does. He takes an example from everyday life, work, and pay. You and I understand these concepts. We work, we get paid. So what does this mean in verse 4? He means this. He means this. That works only produce debt. Works only produce debt. When you and I go to work, we expect to be paid for the service that we provide, correct? Absolutely. When we have done the work, payments due from our employer. And when we're paid, we don't go to our employer and tell them, oh, you're so gracious to pay me. Thank you very much. I mean, maybe we should say thank you. But we don't generally do that. We don't say, you're so gracious, thank you. No, we say, pay me. I did the work. You owe me. It is due because you worked for it. It is debt owed to you. So if you work for your salvation, how does it glorify God then? It doesn't. It would not be grace. It would be debt owed to you. I did the work, God, now save me. That is what he's saying. Very 
Simple. This would not glorify God. This would glorify self. So this cannot be the case. What an amazing, simple statement that puts to shame any cult or religion teaching works. God does not get the glory, so how are you glorifying God in it? That's the question I would ask. Who's getting the glory when you're doing all the work? I mean, do you think the Jehovah's Witness on the street, passing out information, is doing it because they, they love you? No, they're not. What about the Mormon who has to do their missionary internship? They're doing it because they're told if they do, God is pleased with them. That they have a chance. That they have a better chance. That they're going to earn more. Why do you think their buildings are so beautiful and manicured? Why do you think this is? Because they are told they have to give. They have to. It's not a question. It's not an offering. You have to give to be a member of this church. And if you don't, they take an accounting. They know what everybody makes, and they know how much you're supposed to be giving. And so we look at them and we think, oh my gosh, look at their buildings, look how beautiful. It's because they think that it's getting them somewhere. That's why. Viewed as debt then, how much do we need to give for anything to be enough? Think about it. How many Hail Marys do I need to say? How many times do I need to take communion? When should I be baptized? As an infant? As an adult? What happens if I don't do my first Holy Communion or have a quinceanera? What happens? You know what's interesting? None of these religions can tell you how much is enough. None of them. They keep pouring it and pouring it and pouring it, and you have to continue and continue. And you want to know why? Because you can never do enough to earn salvation. Who can come to you and say, you've done enough, you, you're in? Nobody. It's grace. Why is this the case? Because that is not the way of salvation. And Paul is proving it to the Jew then and to the world today. If you have worked for it, then what? Then God owes you. Then who gets the glory? We get the glory. God owes us nothing. He owes nothing to anybody. And if he does, then it's not grace. That's the picture. Amazing truths. This is where I would come if anybody says, you need to do this, this, and that. And I come right here. And I say, you show me. Because that's the case with the Jews. And the Apostle Paul used Abraham, the father of the faith, by the way, the father of all nations, which means that everybody came from him, which means that all the false religion and cults have the same way of salvation. Amazing, amazing. The prophet Isaiah said it best. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. Filthy. Philippians 3.8. Listen to this. Yet indeed, I also count all things, the Apostle Paul Loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. You ever talked about that word rubbish? Rubbish. Garbage. Literally dung. Refuse. Manure. Crap. Can I say that? Crap. It's crap. 
Paul to the Philippians was saying that all these works he did were a big pile of manure, junk, worthless. Every work ever done to try to earn salvation is viewed as a big pile of refuse, of manure. What a picture. This is how God views our works when they're not done after we're saved with the right heart. So can you imagine coming to the Lord? This will be everybody at the white throne judgment, by the way. If you think you want to be saved by works, that's where you're going to be. And now imagine you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, here's everything I've done. And he says, it's a big pile of poop. It's junk. What a picture. If it's not done after you're saved. Amazing. So here's the negative again, really. Abraham not saved by works. Otherwise, it would not be God's grace, but debt that he owes us. And that would strip God of all of his glory. And God does not share what? He doesn't share his glory at all. Such a powerful message and such a simple sentence. And he went right to the heart of what people understand their money to do it. Pretty amazing. Verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now here Paul comes to the positive statement. It is not of works, but it is by faith. It is faith on Jesus, on Messiah who justifies. What does that mean? Belief in what Jesus has done on the cross and why he did it. I believe that. It's not my faith to believe that. I believe what he did. That's what saves me. I believe what he did. I believe why he did it. And we must look carefully now at this word here, ungodly. What does it tell us? But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly. Who is ungodly? Who's ungodly? Everyone. We all are. We proved that in the previous chapters. The Apostle Paul says it. You remember when Jesus called Levi, Matthew, Matthew the tax collector? You remember that? Matthew was so pumped, right? He invited all of his friends to dinner to meet Jesus. Great picture. And there's Jesus among all these who the Jews considered what? Ungodly. They were ungodly. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're watching all of this. They asked the disciples, how could Jesus be sitting with these sinners? And you know what's awesome? Jesus didn't let them answer. He got up and answered. They're talking to the disciples, but here's Jesus intervening. Mark 2.17 gives us what Jesus said. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are what? Sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, there's no help for those who think they're good already. None. Sad, isn't it? Jesus came to save those who know they are sinful. They know they are unrighteous. 
They know that they need the help. They know that they are ungodly. And that, you have to come to that place. That's the only time you can come to repentance. And it's not always the person who is the worst sinner out there. It could be the best person in the world who doesn't know Christ. They all, we all have to come to that place where we realize, I'm ungodly. I'm ungodly. We are all ungodly before we come to Christ. Salvation, it doesn't make us holy. It makes us righteous in good legal standing with God. Then comes the process of sanctification. Yes, that's the way of it. And before we can be saved, we must come to realize we are the ungodly that he's talking about. And who does God save? The ungodly. If you, can, if you can't say that you're ungodly, if you can't conclude that, if you've never concluded that you're ungodly and that you need help from Jesus, there's no hope for you. None. You have no hope. So who's the ungodly man here that he's talking about? He's talking about Abraham, and he's going to show us. But the ungodly person is the person who has no works to show, who comes to the conclusion that everything that they've ever done is no good. A person who comes to that conclusion has nothing they can offer. And what a great place to be. It is the one that comes to the end of self and humbly runs into the arms of God. Remember, that's what the law was to do, to drive us into the loving arms of God because we realize we can't do it. We realize we're ungodly and I, I have no hope. I can't do it. I mean, even as a Christian now, when you've accepted Christ, do you find yourself always doing the right things? No. Apostle Paul is going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that today. But ungodly. This is Paul's point. Jesus saves those who are ungodly when they believe on Him. And again, the Apostle Paul is bringing in Abraham, the father of the nation, to prove it. And how does Paul do this? By proving Abraham was ungodly before he was called. Not that he was living this life of debauchery all the time. By the way, he began to live that life of debauchery after he was saved. Crazy. But he was still saved. He's bringing him in to prove this point. That Abraham was ungodly when God began to work on him. It was not the other way around. It was not that he was so good and righteous, God could not ignore him. That God looked down and said, oh, look at that man. He's righteous and he's going to be mine. I'm going to save him as a result. Man, if that were the case, nobody would be saved. There's some that think they would because they think we're so good think they're so righteous. This was an invented theory of Abraham, an invented theory. And how did they come to this conclusion? They twisted God's word to arrive at it. Does that ever happen today? Never. Never. Nobody ever takes God's word out of context and makes it out to fit their own lifestyle. Nobody does that. This is what the rabbis did. Can you believe it? Listen, rabbinical teaching showed 
and as most Jews believed, that Abraham was made right with God because of his own righteous character. They thought he was so good that God saved him as a result of it. Now, to arrive at this conclusion, the scriptures had to be twisted and misinterpreted. They would have to be taken out of context to fit within their narrative. So let's look at this. Genesis 26, 4 and 5. You don't have to turn there. But the rabbis pointed out what the Lord told to Isaac. And it says, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see what you see that? He kept all of those things. So they pointed to this and said that Abraham was obedient to the law perfectly, which is why God called him. They also pointed to Isaiah 41:8, where God called Abraham my friend. They pointed to Habakkuk 2:4, where the Bible says, The just shall live by faith, but they changed it to read this: The just shall live by his faithfulness. Not by God's faithfulness, by my faithfulness, I shall be saved. They changed it. Instead of faithfulness being a result of faith, they changed it to mean justification by merit. Justification by merit. There are several non-scriptural, non-inspired books, several Jewish apocryphal books that taught that Abraham was justified by keeping God's law. There's one called Ecclesiasticus, also known as the wisdom of Sirach, Abraham is said to have become right with God because of his obedience. There's the prayer of Manasseh. It even asserted Abraham's sinlessness. It said, Therefore thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. That's what they wrote. But we know the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they said they did not sin. None of them sinned. Really? Man, you really have to ignore Old Testament Scripture to see that. We're going to look at Abraham's life. How could they say that? You would have to completely ignore the Pentateuch. And they didn't do that. They said, this is our word. This is our law. So he's taking all of this and just showing them that they're wrong. They have another book called the Book of Jubilees where the writer says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Remember those commercials? The Mormon commercials? They would show the Bible and they say, and the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Added added if their founder would have read Romans correctly do you think he could ever have done that never never an angel of light came to him we're not going to go into that listen some rabbinical writings claim that Abraham was so inherently good that he began serving God when he was three years old and that he was one of seven righteous men who had the privilege of bringing back the Shekinah glory to the tabernacle. Three years old, he started serving God perfectly. What happened before that? 
What happened when his parents changed him? Was he screaming? I mean, I don't know. Think about it. it it's impossible. In order to believe any of this, you would have to disregard the Old Testament completely. The scriptures say that Abraham was not saved because of his righteousness. They prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God began to work in his life while he was yet, what? Ungodly. This is Paul's point. He saves the ungodly. He's going to use Abraham to prove it. He's going to use him. And guess what? He saved Abraham that way. He saves everybody that way. He saved us that way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, they came to the belief because they wanted to, that Abraham was made righteous through his own efforts, that he was sinless, and that he was perfect. And this is what we do when we have a narrative and a view of life, and we read into the scriptures and we change it to fit our lifestyle, rather than letting them come out and change us. And you have to come to that place where you realize, man, I'm just ungodly. I can't do it. I can't make any sense of it. Lord, I am yours. Change me, shape me, mold me. But see here, you would have to completely ignore Abraham's life to come to this conclusion. See, if you really knew what God did through Abraham, you would see that it is all done by faith. By grace, you would see it is all a foreshadowing of Christ to come on Calvary. But to fit it within their narrative, they twisted God's word, made it to their invented theory of Abraham, just like today. Anything other than God's word is just man-made theory. And what is scary about that? It leads to death. It leads to hell. And destruction. That's why the gospel of grace is so good. So we've seen this now. We've seen the invented theory of Abraham. But let's look at the scriptural truth of Abraham. What did the scriptures really say about him? Knowing that Abraham was the pattern then, Paul flips it on them here and gives them the scriptural truth about Abraham. Not the man-made traditions, and the scriptures point out very clearly that Abraham was saved by faith, by God's grace alone. And if he is their pattern, they needed to know the true pattern. That's what we need to do. We just tell people the true pattern. Can we change them? No, but we're supposed to go out and share this. And this is Paul's point. And he loves his nation. He loves his people. He wants them changed. Where is he doing his work? Is he out there in the government trying to change policies? No, he's trying to change hearts. Because it's through the heart that you will change those things. In the life of Abraham, I believe we see some very important things that Paul saw. Abraham was not a sinless, perfect man that they thought he was. And before he could come to a place, he could have the faith to offer up his son. Remember that? He offered up Isaac. He did it in obedience. Before he could even get to that place of faith, he would have to be developed. Anybody able to obey God in that type of thing, to put your son on an altar and to raise a knife to plunge it into him, would have to be developed 
into that type of faith, don't you think? To come to that pinnacle of faith, he has to be developed. How did God do it? You remember with me, Abraham lived about 2,000 years before the Apostle Paul. He uses him to show that salvation by faith is nothing new at all. Remember, Abraham lived 600 years before the covenant was even given to Moses, before the law. So he lived prior to any law given. Therefore, how could he even keep any law? There's no possible way. Just as the Jew was through their scriptures, we're introduced to Abraham where? In Genesis chapter 12. And through Abraham's life, as you read through chapter 12 and the rest of the chapters that you see, Abraham, through his life, you see some very important ways God moved in his life. And I love it because they're the same ways we have found God to move in our lives. And what are these ways? God discovers us. God detaches us from the world, sends us out. God develops us. And then God displays us. And what do I mean by that? He puts us on display in sometimes in the toughest places and times in our lives. To demonstrate faith in times of serious, in serious times, to demonstrate our faith. Why? So that He can get the glory. So that He can shine. So that people might come to know Him through our lives. That's what we're here to do. Glorify the Lord. Listen to this. Not much is known about Abraham before God called him, right? Go back before that. Go back before chapter 12. Not much is known about him. We know he was an ungodly man when he was called, though. How do we know this? Well, first, uh, when, we first call, when he's first called, we discover Abraham living where? In Ur of Chaldee. It was one of the most important metropolises of the ancient world. It was a city of commerce. It was strategically placed on the Euphrates River. So in present Iraq, it would be halfway between the head of the Persian Gulf and Baghdad. And Abraham was said to have lived at the height of this city's splendor. Excavations and ancient documents prove that it was a very prosperous center of business and religion. It was a polytheistic city, believed in many gods with one chief god. The chief god's name was Sin, S-I-N. I don't know if it's Sin or Sin, Satin. Sorry. Abraham, though, was brought up in paganism. We know this because his father, Terah, was an idolater, which Joshua 24.2 tells us. So these are the things we know. So before there was any law given that he could even keep, before there's any circumcision, while living in a pagan country as a pagan man, an ungodly man, God began working on him. God justifies the ungodly. Ungodly first. We're all ungodly first. God begins to work on him. Not only that, listen, we're never given any reason in Scripture why God chose Abraham. We're never given any of that. He was not searching for God. God was searching for him, as he does with all of us. 
So how could we come to the conclusion that he was so righteous, that's why God chose him? No, we can't. That's not the way of it. So this proves that Abraham was not righteous before he was called by God. So God discovers or seeks a man. He seeks people out. He makes the first move. Then we move. Amazing truth. We've learned these things. I wish we can go back and summarize it all. That would take too much time. But then God detaches his man. God detaches a person. When Abraham was called by God, it took tremendous faith to do what he did. Tremendous faith. Remember? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Why don't you turn there? Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, What? Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What faith it must have taken to do this, to abandon everything. Here you are in a pagan country, pagan land, minding your own business, probably have a good business, probably have a great life. You've got a 401k. You've got it all. You've got health care. You're doing good. You're in the center of the metropolis, and here is somebody that you've never talked to before. And he says, hey, get up and leave. And he does. Abraham left his current securities for a future uncertainty. Wow, what faith. Has God ever asked you to do something like that? To leave your current security for a future uncertainty. Man, that's faith. That's a call of God. I'm certain somebody here is going through something like that. Well, the Lord is speaking to you about your current securities. He wants you to do something that's a future uncertainty. Man, isn't that the life of faith? What faith that this took. God called him and he went. And guess what? He didn't even know where he was going. He maybe had an idea, but he had no, he didn't, he didn't know where he was going. Man, what faith. With no guarantee but God's word. Abraham leaves his business, his homeland, his friends, most of his relatives, and probably many of his possessions. Can any of us do that today? It's so difficult, isn't it? When God calls us to do something, we think about, well, we got to sell the house, we're going to move away from this person, we're going to do this. And sometimes we just abandon God because we're settled. We're already settled. That God can't be moving me. God can't be doing this. There's no way. And we get in a rut and we end up not doing what he's called us to do. So God discovers or seeks him out. God detaches from everything. This is what he does in our lives. And now God develops. We're all in that developmental stage. He develops and he developed Abraham. Even after Abraham was called in chapter 12 of Genesis, even after he 
moved out and was obedient, was he completely obedient? He was not completely obedient. His faith and trust in God had to be developed. Do you see where you're going here? God could not reveal something to him yet because he was not at that place yet. He could not have him go up and test his heart of faith with Isaac, his son, because he wasn't prepared. He wasn't ready for that yet, just like we all are. We don't know that future uncertainty, but what God is doing in your life right now, through faith, when you're trusting Him in the little things, you don't think He's getting ready to do something bigger in your life? He absolutely is. Absolutely. I'm not talking about the pastors and stuff that teach you're going to get the next promotion or anything like that. Whatever is going to glorify His name through your life, that could be something fantastic in your life that we would view as fantastic, or it could be something painful. But God gets the glory in both of them. His faith and trust in God had to be developed, just like all of ours. And God worked with him, and he was patient with him, wasn't he? So patient with him. What a testimony. Doesn't that comfort you? That the father of all the nations, God was even patient with him? Don't you think he's patient with us? Abraham was commanded to leave everyone. But look who he took. He took his father, Terah. He took his nephew, Lot. Man, all kinds of trouble came through that. We don't have even time to go through all that. But did God leave him? Did God turn his back on Abraham and say, Oh, no, you're disobedient and I'm leaving you. You're not saved anymore, Abraham. No, he doesn't do that. He develops him. He works with him. He says, I know, son, that your faith is not where it needs to be, and I'm going to work with you. Oh, man, does that not just crush you? Why is that? Because you came to a place where you realize, I'm ungodly. Oh, we're going to show you. We're going to show you. As a result of this disobedience, there were, there were things that had to come, right? You reap what you sow. You can be a Christian, yes, and saved, but you reap what you sow. Oh, man, I don't like that. I don't want to reap what I sow. Listen, they wasted 15 years in a place they, were, they should have never been. 15 years until Terah's dad died. He wasn't even supposed to take him. Now here he is 15 years later. He's 75 years old. And still... He didn't obey. He obeyed partially because Lot was still with him as he continued on. Now it was at this time that God gives Abraham another promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. When they reached Shechem and Canaan, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. But Abraham's faith was not perfect, and it was tested. And he faced what? He faced a famine. And what did he do? Instead of turning to God for help, where did he go? He went to Pharaoh. And then what? He found himself compromising. Remember Sarah, his wife? Beautiful woman, we're told. 
He's afraid that Pharaoh was going to kill him for his wife. So he says, lie to him and tell him you're my sister. What a, what a man, right? What a guard of his family. What a man. And as a result, Pharaoh took her anyway. But guess what happened to Pharaoh's house? Plagues came upon him. And it was a result of Abraham's sin. If you think our sin will not impact another's life, you're kidding yourself. You kid yourself. It will. And not only did he turn to the world when he was afraid and he lied, but he's tested again. Remember the promise was to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a child and the nations of the world would be blessed through him. But see, she was getting beyond childbearing age. Man, they're old. So she was still barren. She couldn't have a child. So they got to talking, those two, and they came up with this plan. And Sarah said, hey, I got an idea. Sleep with my maid, Hagar. They took matters into their own hands again, and as a result, what happened? He committed adultery. This is Abraham. This is the one they said, oh, he's so righteous, God chose him. And Paul is saying, how can you believe that? Just go back and look at the history. He says this in so many words. See, they would know this. You and I don't know it because we're not all Jewish. We have to expound upon these things so that we realize what the Apostle Paul is saying. Despite all of his spiritual imperfection, though, he continued to come back to the one who called him. God called him. He called us. The Lord continued to fulfill the promises in Abraham's life. And Abraham continued to walk in faith. Grace. I'm saved by grace. My faith and trust is him. It's a legal status. Amazing truth. When I fail, the Lord is always there to pick me up and work with me. He doesn't leave me. He doesn't forsake me, the Bible says. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Awesome. What a salvation. The rabbi's teachings were obviously inconsistent with what God's word taught. Their theories and traditions didn't match the scriptural truths they had in their hands and in their head. Abraham was not perfect and sinless. Therefore, bringing God's approval and promises to him. He is just like all of us. Searches for us while we're yet sinners, pagans in a pagan world. He comes to save the ungodly when we believe on him. That's our response. That's our response. When we believe on what? On his promises. On what Christ came to do and why he did it. That's it. To save us. And Abraham is the pattern. But it's through faith, not works. The scriptures right here prove it all. So we looked at all this, and now God displays this man. What do you mean by that? Well, God discovers us. God then detaches us. God develops us. I mean, don't we see that in Abraham's life? Wow, I wish we had time to dig in, and one day we should. But just like with Abraham, God displays us 
In other words, he works with us, develop our trust in him to bring us to a place in our faith we never thought we would ever trust in him. To come to this pinnacle of our faith in times when we never thought we would trust him. Sometimes having a peace in the most difficult times of our lives. As it was with Abraham. When he was told what? To sacrifice his son Isaac. And through this, God displays our faith to glorify his name. This is what he does with Abraham and Isaac. And it's so much more though. It's so much more. See, we already proved last week what the scriptures say about Abraham believing in Messiah. That Abraham believed God for a redeemer because of what he saw. He may not have known his name or when he would come exactly, but he saw it. He believed it. Galatians 3.16 tells us, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In other words, the promise to Abraham is to one seed, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Abraham was given light to see that the promise was not to many, but to one, a Redeemer who would come. That's the light he was given. There's proof. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Listen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but have seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So this scripture includes Sarah and Abraham who died in faith, not seeing the promise fulfilled. And since they did not see the, the promise fulfilled through Isaac, it must not have been Isaac. It was beyond Isaac. So he's seen the Redeemer farther out. Amazing truth. His faith included believing God and, and going. But Abraham believed in the Redeemer. It was someone beyond Isaac, which is why he didn't see it fulfilled. When the promise came through Isaac, it is very possible Abraham saw beyond and he went back to that scripture in Genesis 3.15 where it says that the seed that bruised the serpent's head. He could have seen that and put it together. Who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. He sheds light on that truth. And he was not just shown the seed. He was shown more. We're reminded of another setting. This displaying of the obedience of Abraham. It is at the great sacrifice, and is the pinnacle of his faith with Abraham and Isaac when he's told to take Isaac and sacrifice him. This was the event that the Lord had been preparing him for. It was to show him something in his life, and it was to be written in here for us as well. So that the Apostle Paul could write Romans chapter 4 and say, hey guys, look, Redeemer was always there. Let me show you. We find the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis chapter 22 begins with this, And it came to pass after these things. Well, what things? If we begin to read through all these chapters. Well, the things in Abraham's life that produced his grace and growth and the remarkable increase in his knowledge of God. The things that made it possible for him to obey God's call 
in Genesis 22. Abraham's great faith, which blazed out so gloriously on Mount Moriah where he's called, it didn't appear out of a vacuum, did it? It didn't just appear his faith. This faith just didn't appear out of nothing. Eighty years before, God asked Abraham to give up his father, to give up everything. But he messed up all over the place, didn't he? Now he's asking him to give up his son. But now he's completely obedient. Oh my gosh. You see the progression of faith? It's amazing. God in the first verses of Genesis 22 commands Abraham to take who? His only begotten son. And it's these words, his only begotten son, that arrest us and take us to where? John 3.16. What a picture. It is the picture of the servants also staying behind as the father and the son went up alone. Who was up on the cross alone with his father? Jesus. It's the same picture. And the famous line of Abraham's to his servants, you guys stay here, we'll be back. We'll be back. He understood that Isaac was going to come back with him because he knew that God was going to provide a sacrifice for himself. It was the picture of Isaac as he's going up, carrying his own wood to be sacrificed. And what is that a picture of? Jesus carrying his cross. Beautiful. And then looking around for the sacrifice and asking his father, hey, where is it? Where is it at? It's like Jesus saying, can this cup pass over me? Where's the sacrifice? Is there any other way? And is the picture of Isaac seeing that fire and the knife in his father's hands, but wondering where the sacrifice was. And Abraham replies to Isaac that God will provide one. Then Isaac being led then quietly, just as Jesus was led to a lamb to the slaughter, humbly, quietly. Wow, what a New Testament picture. The New Testament confirms that Genesis 22 is a pictorial foreview of Calvary. Listen to this, Hebrews eleven seventeen nineteen. 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. In other words, what happened on Mount Moriah was a divinely painted picture of what would happen eventually on Mount Calvary. I believe God, we're going to come back, and I believe God can raise my son even from the dead, even there, even though there had been no resurrection before. It's very possible that through this example, Abraham saw that the one to come would be one raised from the dead. He didn't have to sacrifice his son. God made a way. There was still no resurrection. But now he understands. He saw in his own son a figure and a potential type of a redeemer. That's what it's called. He's called a type. And Abraham saw it right there. That redeemer would come. 
and that salvation was through grace. That's why Abraham, before any law given, or any sacrifices made, or any circumcision could be done, named that place what? The Lord will provide. The Lord provides. Yahweh Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. He knew God would provide a way of salvation. It's God's way. Everything is is His way. And Jesus Himself confirms it. God in the flesh. What He says in John 8, 56. And this is it. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. He knew I was coming. He knew there was a Redeemer coming. Does it get any more clear? Amazing. What Paul had been teaching in the abstract, he brings forward. He places flesh and blood around these bare bones of salvation that he's been talking about, that stripped down. He brings it to life using the nation's hero, saying, you guys got it all wrong. And listen, I had it the same way. This is all the stuff that Paul would believe, remember, because he was the same, he came from the same stock. And now here he is. So Abraham is the pattern of salvation by grace alone. And you know what's amazing? He's the father of all nations, as we've already stated. Therefore, no matter what religion, what race, what creed you come from, he is the pattern of salvation for all. Which is what? Faith in Christ. That's the conclusion. Wow, man, do you understand what amazing grace we have? So we can never conclude that it was anything of our own works. He was not perfect and then God chose him as a result. He was ungodly and called. Ungodly, that's who God calls. Ungodly. And who does God still call? He still calls the ungodly. You cannot be saved until you come to that conclusion that I'm ungodly and I need a Savior because works are what? They're abolished. It's all faith. It's all grace. This salvation is done by Him alone. He receives all the glory for it. Beautiful salvation that we have and it's works that follow. That's after. Salvation first. And it comes after we come to that conclusion that we're ungodly, which brings us to what? Repentance. I can't do it. Be my Lord and my Savior. Salvation. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great salvation, Lord, these great truths, Lord. And we could spend years probably in just this section. And we thank you, Lord. Make it clear to us, Father, what this is all about. And for those, Lord, who are not saved and they're hearing this for the first time, may they come to the conclusion, Lord, that there's nothing they could ever do. And Lord, that there's nothing that they can clean up, that they could just accept you right now, right where they're at, and you'll take care of the rest. It just has to be done with a genuine heart, realizing that we're not perfect. I'm ungodly and I can't do it. And we ask that you change us, Lord. May we leave these four walls changed today and take these great salvation out to the world, Father. Light that fire within us. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. Bless our fellowship. Thank you for providing all of our needs. 
We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.